Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Frog Father, by Manly Wade Wellman. This is first published in Hills, November 1946. Um, just so happened that I was talking a little bit about Manly Wade Wellman on the internet yesterday, and somebody pointed out uh, a fact that I think people should know, um, that Manly Wade Wellman is like the later part of Weird Tales' star find. So if we talk about Weird Tales, the early years of Weird Tales, it runs quite a long time. It, in its original run, it ran it's from late 1922 until... Um, 1954 or five. Um, but after the 1930s, when Lovecraft dies in 37, um, and uh, Robert E. Howard died in 36, and Clark Ashton Smith um, sort of gets out of short stories and more into sculpture, <laughs> um, the major three, the big three authors from Weird Tales are gone. There are other people. Seabury Quinn's in there. Ray Bradbury shows up. But Ray Bradbury is not primarily a Weird Tales guy. Robert Block shows up. But he becomes, you know, a, a bigger name after. But Manly Wade Wellman was one of the star attractions of later Weird Tales. Starting in the 40s and going into the 50s. He is a kind of attraction. And the reason for that, I think, is evident in a story like this. It's a really good read. <laughs> it's actually, uh, it's a good look, too. Um, the, the illustration mm -hmm. uh, at, the, at the beginning is quite nice. But I won't say yes. what it is at this point. Okay. So it's a good read, meaning that you want me to read it? Oh, please. I would love you for uh, you to read it to me and to everybody else. Frogfather. No, I never liked frogs' legs very much, not even before what happened, and I wouldn't eat them now if I was starving. This is why. Though I'd known and worked for Ransom Cuff for two years, all of each day and part of most nights, I remember him clearly only in the dark of that particular night we went frog hunting. Ranson Cuff was the sort of man who shoved himself into your mind like a snake crawling into a gopher hole. I defy anyone to find anyone else who liked Ranson Cuff. Maybe his wife liked him, but she didn't like him for more than three weeks. Nobody around the swamps liked him, though he was the best off in money. He ran a string of hunting camps for strangers from up north who came to hunt deer or fish for bass once in a while to chase bear with dogs. He did his end of that job well, and if he was rude to strangers, the strangers figured him for a picturesque character. I've heard them all call him that. The Swamps people called him other things to his face if he didn't have mortgages on their houseboats, cabins, and tramping outfits. On their houseboats, cabins, and trapping outfits. This night we were paddling, he and I and an old, old Indian whose name I never knew, in a really beautiful boat he'd taken for a bad debt. Cuff was going to get a mess of frog's legs, which he loved, and which he'd loved three times as much because he'd killed the frogs for them. Cuff would have killed people if he dared, just for fun. I know he would. 
I'd gone to work for him when I was 15. My old maid aunt, who raised me, owed him money she could never pay. When he told her to, she gave me to him, and I suppose what I earned went into settling the debt. Slavery, and he was the quickest and oftenest to remind me of it. That night was clear and dark, not a speck of moon and all the stars anyone ever saw at once. They sheened the swamp water up to where the great fat clumps of trees cuddled it in at the edge. I paddled, the old Indian paddled, and Cuff sat like a fat toad, not a frog, in the bow with his lantern and his gig. The lantern light gave his face the kind of shadows that showed us what he was. His face was as round as a lemon and as yellow and as sour. His mouth was small, and his eyes couldn't have been closer together without mixing into each other, and his little nose was the only bony thing about him. Head for that neck of water northeast, he said. I haven't ever been in there, but I hear frogs singing, and none of them are out along these banks. He cursed the frogs for not being there to kill. I began to scoop with my paddle to turn the boat the way he said, but the old Indian pulled his paddle out with a little dripping slop. We don't go there, said the old Indian. He spoke wonderful English, better than Cuff or myself. Don't go where, snarled Cuff. He always snarled at people who had to take it. The old Indian had come to work for him, hungry and ragged, and wasn't exactly fat or well-dressed now. I'm speaking for your good, Mr. Cuff, said the old Indian. That's no place to stick frogs. I can hear them singing, Cuff said. Listen, there must be a whole nation of them. They're there because they're safe, said the old Indian. Cah! Cuff spit into the water. Safe, that's what they think. We're going in there to stick a double mess. I'm of the first people here, and I can tell you the truth of it, Mr. Cuff, went on the old Indian, with Indian quiet and Indian stubbornness. I'm surprised you don't know about that neck of water and what's beyond. It's the home of Kongabasi. Don't know him, growled Cuff. Kongabasi, repeated the old Indian, the frog father. He's lived there since the world was made. The oldest ones say he dug the waterways and planted the trees along them, and the frogs are his children. Oh, heaven deliver me. Cuff screwed his fat face into the sourest frown I had ever seen, even on him. Indian talk, I came out to hear. You make me sick. Get going northwest. No. And the Indian laid his paddle inside the boat. You're fired, you old. And Cuff cursed the Indian every way he knew. He knew a great many ways, including the Indian's ancestry back to Adam and his children down to the last generation. You're fired, he said again. Get out of this boat. Yes, Mr. Cuff, said the old Indian gently. Put into the shore. Get out right here, blustered Cuff. I'm not taking you to the shore. Yes, said the old Indian again, and slipped overboard sidewise like a muskrat. He barely rippled the water as he swam away. Cuff spat after him and cocked his head. Hark at those frogs singing, he said. Frog father, I'll frog father them right in their pappy's dooryard. Johnny, he said to me, get us going there. I did all the paddling and we came to the neck of water. Trees were close on both sides, shutting out the little, little gleam of starlight. But there seemed to be a sort of green brightness beyond. 
Cuff swore at me to make me ship my paddle. Look at the glow from under the surface, said Cuff. He reached right down into his half-knowledge for a cozy explanation. Must be full of those little shiny bugs like the ones out in the sea. Makes it easy for us to find the frogs. I remember how my grandfather had said once, you're better off knowing a few things than to know so many things that aren't so. My hunch was that maybe there was rotten wood somewhere around, what old-timers call foxfire. Cuff, at the bow, knelt with his lantern in one hand and his gig in the other. The gig had a hand-forged fork for its head, three sharp barbed spikes. The shaft was a piece of hickory, about four feet long and as thick as your hand could hold comfortably. Snake us along the bank, Johnny, he said. Now hold her. I see one. I saw it, too, in the light of his lantern, a nice, fat, green frog on a rock set in some roots. It squatted with its knees high and its hands together in front of it, like a boy waiting his turn at a marble game. Its head was lifted, its eyes fixed by the dazzling glare of the lantern, and those eyes were like precious jewels. Cuff stabbed down and brought it up, squirming and kicking its mouth gaped open, all three tines of his gig in it. He smacked it on the inside of the boat to quiet it and shoved it off at my feet. Got your knife, he growled, and slice off its legs. No, snake me along again. I see a bigger one yonder. You're tipping me away, he said. Balance me back or I'll put a knot on your head with this gig handle. It's not me, Mr. Cuff, I argued, but not with any heart in it because he always frightened me. You must be tipping us. My weight's here next to the frog, you fool, he said, and you're tipping us toward the water. You'll have us over in a minute. The boat was tipping, and I shifted to bring her back on an even keel but she tipped more and i looked around to see what snag might have hooked us over the thwart lay something like a long smooth piece of wood darkish and dampish in the dim light yes a snag i thought but cuff turned and lifted the lantern and i saw it was no snag it was a long green arm From elbow to fingertip, it was visible over the thwart, wading down that side of the boat and tipping us in the direction of the open water. The ordinary human arm is 18 inches long, I hear. The length of the old-fashioned Bible cubit. This was longer than that. Two feet at least, and probably more. It was muscled smoothly and trimly from the neat point of the elbow to the slender, supple wrist, and beyond this stretched slim, pointed fingers. But not enough. The hand spread and it had three fingers and a thumb with no gap where the other finger had been lost. Between them was a shiny wet web and it was dead gray where the arm was covered with sleek green skin blotched twice or three times with brown black spots as big as saucers. What Cuff said I wouldn't want written down as my own last words. He said it loudly and at, at the noise, another arm came up across the other. He said it loudly. And at the noise, another arm came up across the other and hooked there. Then a head came into view and looked at us. The lantern light caught the eyes first. Great popped out eyes of every jewel flashing color known to the vainest woman that lives. They looked at Cuff. They were set in a heavy, blunt head the size of a fish basket, and in some ways the head was like Cuff's, 
but it had no bony nose, no nose at all, and the mouth was a long curved slit like a tight closed gladstone bag. Under the mouth, where the chin ought to be, the white throat dipped in and out, in and out, breathing calmly. The creature lifted a hand quicker than Cuff could stab. It took hold of the gig just below the head. That hickory was as strong as a hoe handle, but the big green webbed hand snapped off the iron forks just like picking a daisy and tossed it away with a splash. At that splash, every frog stopped singing and the big elbows heaved a little, shoulders came into view, and I saw what there was to see of the creature down to where its waist came out of the water. All blotchy green and brown with a white belly and a wet smoothness, it was a frog, but it was bigger than a man by twice, I suppose. Our boat went over, and I flew through the air and splashed in. That moment in the air was enough to see Cuff caught by neck and shoulder in those two green hands, and he went down underwater, lantern and all. He hadn't time for another curse. As I sank, I got my arms and legs working. I was more anxious to swim away than swim up. My eyes were open and I saw under the water by the green light that was there. That part of the swamps must have been the deepest and many times my length below I could make out old drowned tree trunks, a lost forest from some ancient time of storm and wash away. They were mixed up together as if something had tried to make a hut or nest of them and I suppose something had. There was a hole among them like a door with a green light coming from it, and down toward that hole swam a long green shape, nine feet at least, from its blunt head to the heels of its flipping webbed feet. Under one arm it carried cuff, tucked like a stolen baby, and the other hand helped swim it along. Then I broke surface and churned away, sick and faint and ready to burst with my pounding heart, but making for the little channel by which we had come into the place. I made it, and when I swam out, I heard a long, soft whistle. It made me almost jump out of the water. Another whistle, and something dark and swift and silent came toward me. I tried to turn away, but my strength was gone. The dark shape bore close, and it was a canoe. The old Indian put down his hand and helped me get in. Then I lay there and came to life while he paddled the canoe idly around and around, here and there on the peaceful starlit water. He did not seem surprised or even curious. He asked me nothing. When I was able, I told him what had happened. It was Kongabasi, he said quietly when I had finished. Kongabasi, the frog father, when a stranger comes to kill children in their very home, will not their father help them? That was something new to think about. I got strength to sit up. We'll have to get help, I said, and go back and, and challenge Kongobasi, he finished for me. Why? He saved his children. He took only Mr. Cuff and let you go. Kongobasi never takes any more prey than he needs. But if many men go there with grappling hooks and weapons, then Kongobasi will have a way to deal with them. And I do not want to see it. I didn't want to see it either. I asked a question. You knew all about Kongabasi, didn't you? You knew what he would do. I saw the old Indian's head nod against the stars. Of course. He has done that to others who came to his home without permission. 
we first people learned many lives ago to keep to our ways and leave him to his. Kongobasi is not terrible. He is only Kongobasi. You think of him as what we call a jibo, an evil spirit. We think of him as a part of nature that defends nature's weak things. Men should be a part of nature too, and perhaps they would escape what Mr. Cuff has not escaped. What shall we do, though? I persisted. Oh, said the old Indian. We shall think of a story, you and I, that explains Mr. Cuff's death. A story that white men will believe. <laughs> Great. Great. Um, it feels like a much older legend than I think what we're given here. Um, but uh, I I can see a little of its construction um, based on how it opens. Um it has that great art, as you point out. Um, one of the things that was consistent, even though the authors uh, were leaving and dying um, in later Weird Tales, was the art. It remained impressive. They didn't always get Virgil Finlay, but they had Virgil Finlay. They had, uh, this artist is A.R. Tilburn, um, and it depicts, I think that's Mr. Cuff there in the canoe. <laughs> Or the boat, and the boat is shaped well, you, interestingly. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a coffin. It's a coffin. Um, the uh, gig in his hand um, isn't how I picture it uh, when I read the story. Um, I think of it more of as uh, a pitchfork. That one looks a little like a pitchfork. Um, it's tines, right? It makes him a devilish figure. Of course, this is how you hunt. Uh, fish with a stick, right? You, the uh, effect of the bending of the water of when you put a stick into the water changes the light. You want to have a little range of ability to the stick as the fish moves, or in this case, the frog. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm not an expert on frog hunting, <laughs> but um, it seems this guy who loved uh, him a mess of frog's legs um, got his comeuppance. And uh, I, I want to go back to the the opening. It says, no, I never liked frog's legs very much, not even before what happened. And I wouldn't eat them now if I was starving. This is why. So it's like he's telling somebody who's asking, do you want some frog legs? <laughs> and he says, no. And then he tells this story. Well, you know, they're making dinner or whatever it is. Um, this reminds me very much of how H.P. Lovecraft opened a story called Cool Air, which is uh, a story that was uh, published in uh, uh, Weird Tales in 1939. This is from 46, so I would expect that most of the people who are readers of Weird Tales, and they were very devoted, would have read Cool Air and appreciated it, including possibly Manly Wade Wellman. So it opens like this. You ask me to explain why I'm afraid of a draft of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room and seem nauseated and repelled when the chill of evening creeps through the heat of a mid-autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do a bad odor, and, and I am the last to deny the impression. What I will do is to relate the most horrible circumstance I've ever encountered and let it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation of my peculiarity. So obviously a very different writing style 
but it's the same setup. And of course, Manly Wade Wellman does it a little more simply and elegantly in a certain sense. No, I've never liked frog's legs very much, not even before what happened. And I wouldn't eat them now if I was starving. This is why. <laughs> so Cool Air makes the narrator of uh, Cool Air um, become convulsively nauseated. Um, what is the reaction of eating frog's legs uh, for John, the uh, slave of Mr. Cuff, who was enslaved by his was the auntie for a debt when he was 14 or so? He don't like frog's legs. <laughs> don't like yeah. him at all. And he didn't like him before, and he really doesn't like him after. One of the things that I like a lot about this story is that I can't really settle on the fine details. The large details, I think, come through pretty well. Um, and in a sense, they are too simple. You know, he has a supernatural uh, occurrence in which a giant frog um, wreaks its uh, protective vengeance on a sadistic human being. Um, and, and, you know, and you shouldn't do that. And the old, old Indian, someone who has no name uh, at all, and, and we're told that, and I never knew his name, although he'd been working with him for a long time. Um, it's someone who is just, in a way, a part of nature, says we should be a part of nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we get that. So you should be a part of nature. You should respect things and so on. Well, um, does that mean we should be vegetarians? Is that what's going on? I don't think Indians are vegetarians. No, nope. uh, at least not, you know, typically. Um, and so, what we hear is that Kongabasi sets the moral tone. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't kill more than he needs to. So, if you were to kill to eat, that would be legitimate. To kill to indulge your own sadism, mm -hmm. that would be illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And so, Cuff deserves to be killed drowned uh, by Congo Bossi. What I don't know, though, when I get to the details, going back to what you've just read to us, I never liked frogs and legs very much, mm -hmm. not even before what happened, and I wouldn't eat them now if I was starving. This is why. And I don't actually know what the this is. It is well, is it that he wouldn't eat them now because he respects them as being children? that they have a right to life, he saw that, mm -hmm. or he wouldn't eat them now because he had such a traumatic experience in watching the harvesting of frogs' legs that he is just traumatized and can't approach that situation again. We, we, we really don't know. Did he learn a lesson that says stay with nature? In which case, I imagine he's become a vegetarian, but we don't get that. It's only the frog's legs. So what is the this, you know? Mm -hmm. This is why. All we know is this is the story. But we don't know what it is about the story that has gotten Johnny to swear off frog's legs, even at the cost of his own life, mm -hmm. if he was starving. And I think there's a lot in this story. For example, when we... Uh, 
art. I mean, there's a lot that, that we need to think about if we read it carefully. Um, when we when Cuff first gives his direction to Johnny and the Indian to get the boat headed toward um, that neck of the water where they hear the, the frogs, he says that neck of water to the northeast. On the very next column, he's complaining that they're not going. He says, you make me sick. Get going northwest. Now, it's possible that that's just an error in transcription. Uh, it could be a failure on Wellman's part in his own proofreading. It could be an error on the typesetter's part in setting it up. But it's also possible that Cuff is unreliable. He really doesn't know nature well enough to know the difference between northeast and northwest. Mm. It's nighttime. They're in a swamp. And maybe Wellman is trying to let us see that this guy is not simply divorced from nature by going sadistically beyond the normal I kill to eat uh, legitimacy of the hunter. But in fact, he is divorced from nature because he just doesn't really know it. He doesn't understand it. And I don't know whether that switch from northeast to northwest is an accident or a very clever detail that's mm. put in there for people who are very careful to notice mm -hmm. um, that 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 trident that he has, mm -hmm. right? That three time, right? Um, there's no reason why the gig should have three. Uh, it's perfectly reasonable to have two. You need two because that stops something from squirming around. Mm. It can't rotate off, right? But you don't need three. You don't need four. But you know who has three? Mm -hmm. Who carries a trident is Poseidon. Yep. This guy, this guy is trying to be the god of the waters, but the real god of the waters comes along and snaps his trident as easy as can be. Mm. And in fact, we are reminded of the Bible, specifically by Johnny. And here we've got somebody who cannot get his animals into his ark. So there is a kind of <laughs> hubris that that cuff shows that suggests that men, humans, take a godlike view of nature and they feel it is theirs to do with as they wish, mm -hmm. not recognizing that, in fact, nature is, in a sense, the god that controls the world that we enter, and that's Kongobasi. Um, and you don't need a name to know that. You just need to be in sympathy with nature. That's why the old, old Indian gets it. Mm -hmm. And what stands against all of that? It's money. The Indian works for him for money. Mm -hmm. Johnny is enslaved for money. The people don't tell him what a son of a bitch he is because he has their debts. The very boat that he rides in is one that he got by collecting on someone's bad debt. Mm -hmm. The northerners come down to despoil the, the, the swamps for fun, right? They want to go hunting, mm -hmm. and he arranges it for them, and that's how he gets rich, by facilitating other people. The, the conflict between money and nature is very interesting here, mm -hmm. and I think it's carried out all the way. It's a, it is a philosophically deeper story than the mere, and this is why I don't eat frog's legs, suggests. 
Yeah. Um, the uh, philosophy is not explicated, but it's hinted at. The um, the one of the interesting things about this story is it uses both the word Indian, which is what all the Indians I know call themselves, except when they're talking, you know, in the media, um, and the word first people. I'm of the first people here, and I can tell you the truth of it, Mr. Cuff. I'm surprised you don't know about that neck of the water and what what's beyond. It's the home of Kongabasi. Well, this first people line comes up again. Uh, I was I saw the old Indian's head nod against the stars. Of course, he has done that to others who came to his home without permission. We first people learned many lives ago to keep to our ways and leave him to his. This is, I think, directly explaining the opening. No, I never liked frog's legs very much, not even before what happened, and I wouldn't eat them now if I was starving. This is why. So one of the philosophies that you find throughout the native peoples of North America, I can't speak for South America, is um, that when you kill an animal, you use every part of it. When you when this guy's killing frogs' legs, uh, and he's having his servants kill frogs, um, they're only going to eat the legs. The rest of it is waste. In the same way that you know, if you're harvesting sharks for shark fin soup, what they do is they cut off the fins and dump the rest. This usually means leaving the animal alive. It's kind of cruelty. But the way native peoples treat the animals, based probably on the fact that they understand this philosophy, is treat nature like, like it's reverent, like it's full of respect. To do otherwise is a kind of a sin. And the way Kongabasi acts, he doesn't kill our narrator. He doesn't kill Johnny because he only has to kill or even, it, it, it's funny because he's not actually killed. You said to drown. Um, the line is actually pretty funny. Um, it says, under one arm it carried cuff, tucked like a stolen baby. And the other hand helped to swim along. And he takes him down into his hut or his nest, right? Um, this makes me think of the changeling uh, phenomenon that sort of was throughout Europe. Basically, the mm -hmm. idea is that your baby might be stolen and replaced with something that looks like your baby, but is not your baby, taken to live with the elves or the fairies. Um, and this is something we need to worry about. In this case, he is, uh, Cuff is a stolen baby. Um, he's baby size compared to the nine foot long Kongabasi. Um, but yeah, we assume he's going to be eaten. Um, He's going to have what's done to him. But notice, Kangabasi doesn't cut off his legs and leave the rest. He is reverent towards the thing that he must kill. And that is uh, explanation I think, of the hidden philosophy that's going beyond here. Kangabasi never takes any more prey than he needs. I don't know what was uh, available in the United States in restaurants in 1946. Um, that's when I was born, so I was basically on milk. Um, but in my whole life, um, even traveling outside of the United States, 
I have never found frog's legs on the menu any place that wasn't a French restaurant. Mm. Uh, these, th this event is set in the swamps. And we know it's somewhere in the south because these northerners come down there to do their hunting. I can't help but think that Ranson Cuff is a big man economically mm -hmm. among the Cajuns. That he has, instead of coming, you know, the, the Acadians coming from Canada and, and settling down in Louisiana uh, and adapting themselves to have a new culture that amalgamates smoothly their French heritage, their New World heritage, and the local geography of the bayous. Instead, he has maintained himself apart from that. He has taken the most French thing possible and decided to indulge that <laughs> without ever becoming part of the overall community. So the, the Frenchness of this, it's not, it is, of course, white men. But if we need to get specific, it's not just any white men. It's white men with a taste for the French kind of food, which is the opposite of what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. You don't just use every part. You look for the most exquisite. You take this piece of that sure. and that piece of the other and so on. Peasant, French peasants, of course, use everything out of economic necessity. But the wealthy, <laughs> something quite different. Who would have thought when Manly Wade Hellman, Wellman offered us a horror story, he would be talking about the French Revolution, ways <laughs> that show there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.